Right, as we begin this morning, I'd like to read a, cup, uh, a few verses from the end of the 121st Psalm. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Father, we're so grateful for that truth because, Father, we sometimes feel like the billiard ball being bounced from one side to the other as we go through life. And yet we know, as we re read in this verse, that you, you guard our going out, you guard our coming in from this time forth and forever. And yet, Lord, sometimes we can elude your guard. We can disregard what you have granted to us. And we know that that is what happened to David at one serious moment in his career. And so, Father, I pray that we will ever be on our guard, accepting your guard over us and living under that protection and consciously aware of the fact that every moment of every day we need your Holy <coughs> Spirit to fill us, to empower us, to enable us to be the men and women you've called us to be. I thank you for this time that we can gather together here this morning. And I pray that you will enlighten our eyes, our hearts, our minds through your word today. Because as we know, as it's stated in scripture, thy word is truth. And it is the truth, Jesus said, that will set us free. And so, Lord, we rest in that truth today and trust you to proclaim it into our hearts and make it living. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're in the book of 2 Samuel, the 10th chapter, reading at verse, well, uh, what I'll do is read beginning at verse 1, even though we studied the first five verses last week, to make it all fit together, I'll read from verse 1 through verse 14. 2 Samuel 10, now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died and Hanan his son became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent consolers to you? David has not sent his servants to you in order to... Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half their beards and cut their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. When they told it to David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, Stay at Jericho until your beards are grown and then return. Now when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, the sons, they were slow, <laughs> The sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans of Beth Rehob, the Arameans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Meacah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. And the sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, while the Arameans of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Meacah were themselves in the field. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans. But the remainder of the people 
he placed in the hand of Abishai his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. And he said, If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the, Ammon, if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. Be strong, and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. We'd just like to say that as we look at this particular chapter, we need to think of it in stark contrast to the chapter which follows. David is establishing an empire with the help of God. And over here on the, uh, in the borderlands to the east was the country of Ammon. And the king of the Ammonites had died, Nahash, who had been king over Ammon for probably half a century. And his successor, Hanan, came to power, whether his son or his grandson. And David truly wanted to make friendly relations with this country. It was small. He knew he could overthrow it any time he wanted to but a good relationship. He had good relations with the Phoenicians over on the coast, and so why not with the Ammonites? But Hanan, as we read in the story, did not accept the servants that David sent, the emissary that he sent, in good faith. He listened to the young advisors that were around him, and uh, they, they warned him that David wasn't really sending this embassy to him because he was honoring the memory of Nahash, the father of Hanan, or the successor, the, the ancestor to Hanan, but that they were really coming to spy out the city to see if they couldn't overthrow it. Well, you know, there was some logic to that because David had been building an empire, had been conquering neighboring peoples, the Moabites, the Edomites, uh, various other, the Philistines, others had been defeated. So, you know, that was logical. But Nahash uh, apparently had at one time befriended David. The scripture does not give us that information. The only account we have of Nahash, I reminded you last time, was that Nahash had laid siege to the city of Jabesh Gilead and uh, Saul had won his spurs by defeating them and driving Nahash away and then was, was officially accepted as king over Israel. Well, apparently while David was fleeing from Saul, he must have spent some time with Nahash and Nahash must have taken him in and given him solace for a period of time. That's the only thing we can assume here because David makes the comment that Nahash had been kind to him. Well, Hanan, unfortunately, listened to his young advisors and decided to mistreat the embassy that was sent. Now, as I mentioned last time, he could have simply said, look, you guys, I don't want you here. Go home. I, I don't want any consolation of David. He could have said, okay, come on in and give them just five minutes of his time and told them to go home. He could have done a lot of things. But instead, he, t he decides to poke, it, you know, poke his finger in David's eyes in effect, and, and to shave these guys' beards in half, you know, not this way, this way, so they're really dumb, you know. I don't know if you watch, read that silly uh, cartoon in the newspaper with, I don't even know what it's called, but the old man with a little mustache, and <laughs> he accidentally shaves off half because his wife scares him, and uh, so he's got half a mustache, and so he decides to better shave the other half off. Well, that, that was humiliating in itself. But the other thing that was humiliating is was that Nahash uh, Hanan split their clothing in half. It says to their hips. In real, in, in the Hebrew, it's to their behind. You know, right to their butt, just right down there. So you know, half of them hanging out, and it was very humiliating. You know, to them. I mean, you can imagine that. 
And as long as they were in Ammonite territory, they were forced to remain that way as they walked out of the land. As soon as they got in Israelite territory, I'm surely, sure they found some way to cover up. But when he got to Jericho, David said, stay there till your beard grows back again because, you know, beards were very almost like sacrosanct in those days. It was a part of being a man. Your beard was off, you know. You're, you're a youth. You're not a real man if you don't have a beard. I, what, what were the Ammonites thinking? You know, I mean, here's this man who's building an empire. Everywhere he goes, he's victorious. And you stick your finger in his eye with your little country. It, it seems a little dumb. What did they expect David's reaction to be? Well, as we discover, whether it came through official or unofficial channels, the Ammonites got the message that David was a bit upset and that he was not going to ignore their challenge. Now, they knew that they didn't have strength in and of themselves within their own manpower, within their own nation, to resist an assault from David. So they decided to hire some guns, you know, hire the Magnificent Seven or, you know, the group to come, the, the Arameans. Hire some mercenaries to come and defend the land. So they sent messages uh, outside of Ammon, and a message went to Aram Zobah. Now, we went through all these Aramean kingdoms uh, a few weeks back, and I, I mentioned that all the way from south of the Sea of Galilee here in the region of, of Tob, which is the southern end of the Bashan Plateau, all the way up, into the, up to the Euphrates River, which is off the top of the map here. Uh, the Euphrates is up here and beyond, up in here. Up here is Aram Naharim, which is where Haran is, and that's where uh, Abraham was before he came down uh, to Canaan. And, and, and Haran may have even been named after his brother, Haran. But Aram Naharim and then uh, Aram Zobah was here, but also included this region in here, splitting it with Aram Hamath. Aram Damascus, Beth Rehob here, and Maaka, and Geshur, and Tob. These are all Aramaic or Syrian nations. Okay? They were not unified. They were separate nations, but frequently when there was trouble, they would ally with each other for mutual defense. This is a very common factor which has occurred in the Middle East historically. It goes on even today. If you were to take away the power of the Saudi family, for example, in Arabia, they would flop back to a bunch of different tribes that have hated each other forever down in the, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. And so the um, Ammonites here hire the uh, Arameans from Zobah and from Beth Rehob, and they hire some here from Maaka and from Tob. And these men, these military units, are sent. And, and the passage tells us that he hired 20,000 infantry from the first two countries and 12,000, 13,000 from the other two. What it doesn't say here in this passage, but if you go to the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 19, is that he also hired some soldiers, some charioteers, some horsemen out of Mesopotamia. So here we have a large mercenary army that has been hired for the purposes of resisting the armed assault that David was about to launch upon the country of Ammon. What was the cost? The cost was a thousand talents of silver, which amounts to approximately 30 tons. Now, that to a very small country such as Ammon was a lot of money. But it was a life and death thing. It was like, well, if we don't do this, we're going to be absorbed into the Davidic Empire, so let's put it on the line. Let's defend ourselves. We discover very quickly as we read this passage that David was not at all intimidated. It, it, you know, how many Arameans were coming didn't even impact him. He sent Joab with the Israelite army to deal with the problem. 
So what had to happen, of course, was the Israelite army had to march down through the Arabah, the, uh, the Jordan Valley here, and up into the highlands of Gilead here, and across into the area of Ammon. But what this passage also does not tell us, but you do find this out in 1 Chronicles, is that the mercenary army was assembled down here at Medeba. Now Medeba is not technically a part of the Ammonite territory. Medeba actually was a part of Moab, but Moab, of course, had been absorbed, and this portion of Moab particularly had been absorbed by the tribe of Reuben. So this was Israelite territory. Israelite territory from the time of the conquest was part of the Saulite kingdom, the kingdom of Saul. And so what you have is an Aramean army actually invading Israel and gathering together in Israelite territory. And so Joab is not only going to, uh, to deal with the Ammonites, you know, sticking their finger in, in the eye of the Israelites, but also to deal with this invasion. So what Joab is going to have to do here is to put his army in here. Rabbah is the capital, and the Ammonites were arrayed apparently just to the south of Rabbah. The Arameans were arrayed to the north of Medeba. There's, there's about 20 miles between Rabbah and Medeba. And so it was in that area that Joab was going to have to fight a two-front battle. He was going to have to face the Ammonites to the north and the Arameans to the south. This didn't seem to be a problem for Joab because we, what we discover is that his brother is with him and, and his brother is pretty much just as capable as is Joab. And so he says to Abishai, his brother, younger brother, he says, you take the, uh, the well, he, he himself, Joab took the cream. He took the... Uh, the, the mighty men, you might say, and uh, to face the Arameans, because they outnumbered the, Moabite, uh, the Ammonites many times over. So the larger army was the Aramean army. So he said, I'll take the cream of the army and, and the bulk of the army, and I'll go down and fight the Arameans. You, you take the remaining units, and you deal with the Ammonites. And then he left the message. He said, if you are beginning to be overwhelmed by the enemy, send me a message and I'll send you some help. If I am, then I'll send you a message, you send me some help. So they kept that connection. So what that means is they were not in direct connection with each other, that the two armies fought separate. So Abishai was up towards Rabbah and Joab was down here towards Medabah. So they kind of had their backs to each other fighting the, the two enemy forces. And so this was the, the situation that the army of Israel faced at that particular moment. Now what is interesting is the, is the rousing speech that Joab gave to the army just before the battle. Now this is historical. You go down through the pages of history and, and some of the uh, most famous speeches that have ever been recorded are speeches given by generals to their armies just before a major battle is fought. And of course all you have to do is go back as recently as our Civil War and many, many of those speeches have, have been recorded. Not tape recorded, but you know, written down. Uh, but here we have, it's a very brief speech, but it is very un-Joab-like. Verse 12, be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people, for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Joab? Joab is not really one of those most godly men in the history of Hebrew, of the Hebrew nation, you know. Job's kind of let me go out and do the man thing and, you know, I'll worry about the religious things some other time, you know. Uh, but here, here is Joab giving a very, very godly speech. I mean, obviously God has inspired him to give this speech in, in this hour of crisis. And, and he gives a speech uh, to his men that, that gives them a real shot of adrenaline and they go forth. 
and, and the result is going to be, of course, a great victory. How long did this battle take? We don't know. It's summarized in two verses. The implication is it probably all took place in one day or you know, at the most two days. Joab routed the Arameans. Now one of the things to note about mercenaries is they're not as dedicated to the cause as the national troops are. This has been true throughout history. You read through the course of time whenever mercenary armies are hired, they will fight as long as it looks like victory is secure. But as it looks like maybe they might lose, they sometimes will just melt off the battlefield or they will send a little embassy over to the other side and say, hey, by the way, you guys are winning. How would you like some more help? We'll join you. Because mercenaries are fighting for money and they've got no point in dying you know, for this and, and therefore the Arameans were routed by Joab. I'm not, by that I cannot say that, that they didn't fight hard. Uh, the Arameans uh, simply didn't have their heart in it as much as the Ammonites did. Once the Arameans had fled from the battlefield, the Ammonites knew the jig was up, you know. Uh, even if they had been holding their own against Abishai, which they probably weren't, they knew that when Joab brought the rest of the army, they were toast. And so they fled from the battlefield and they fled to the city, the scripture says. It doesn't identify the city, but most certainly it was Rabbah. Rabbah was the largest city of the Ammonites. It was their capital. It was a city with apparently strong walls and gates. And, and so they fled into that city to preserve themselves from complete destruction at the hands of Joab. Well, Joab and the army of Israel returned in triumph. And I think they were honored. No ticker-take parades, of course, in those days, but you know the story of, of what it was when, uh, when Saul and David returned and, and the women all came out and sang about uh, Saul slaying his thousand and David his tens of thousands. And so certainly there was a kind of a party given for this great victory uh, over the enemy. But just like in spiritual warfare, which is deeply involved in all of this, the enemy didn't give up so readily. And so as we read the latter part of chapter 10, we find that in verse 15, when the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river. Now these are from Aaron Naharim. And they came to Helam. And Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, led them. Now when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen, and struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings, servants of Hadadezer, saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. I think it's really important for us, as we read through the pages of Old Testament Scripture, to realize that we're not just reading the dry accounts of this kingdom fighting that kingdom and these guys dying over here and those guys dying over there, but we're talking about a situation which is deeply infused with spiritual warfare. This is not just a physical warfare, it's a spiritual warfare. Satan is using the surrounding heathen nations to try to destroy Israel because he knows that through Israel the promise would come. The one who would crush his head will come through the nation of Israel and through the line of David in specific. And so he is doing everything he can to, to bring about destruction of Israel and destruction of David. So as we read these things, 
We know that, yes, there is a physical battle and real soldiers are dying on a real battlefield, but there is a mighty spiritual warfare going on behind the scenes uh, on both sides. The Arameans were humiliated by their rout. The fact that they had been there to help the Ammonites and that between the Ammonites and the Arameans, the Israelites defeated both armies, this was very humiliating to them. And so the king Hadadezer, who was the king of, of Zobah up here in the north, decided to get revenge. And so he invited the Arameans, who had not been involved in any of this up to this point in time anyway, from across the Euphrates, Arab Naharim up here, Aram of the rivers. He invited them to join forces with him. And because it says in the end, kings in plural, it probably implies not only Aram Naharim and Aram Toba, but certainly Beth Rehob and, and maybe Meaka, Gesher, and Tob as well. We don't know. Maybe even Damascus had contributed some troops to this particular battle. So it was the Syrians, the Arameans, the Syrians against the Israelites. The new army gathered to challenge David. I mean, it was an in-your-face challenge. David, here we are. Come and, come and get us. The exact location of Helam is not known. The scripture passage we read this morning says that he crossed the Jordan. David crossed the Jordan. Now, did he cross the Jordan here? Did he cross the Jordan up here? Most believe that uh, Helam was way up here in Aram Zobah, probably in the Orontes River Valley, which is this river valley up here. Uh, if so, David must have gone uh, up here and crossed to try to come around, maybe in a way they weren't suspecting. We, we don't know. But whatever the case may be, that when the battle was engaged, the Arameans were routed again. They were destroyed. The scripture tells us that 40,000 men plus the commander of their army were slain. Now, you remember when we read back in chapter 8, there was a war between Israel and the Arameans. The question is, is this the same war or is this a preceding war? Again, reminding you, because the Hebrews did not think linearly like Greeks think, and which has impacted our society, Hebrews didn't necessarily write their descriptions in chronological order. And so an event which you read in chapter 12 uh, might actually have preceded an event which occurred in chapter 8 of the same book, which gets a little confusing to us uh, because of our way to think from A to Z, you know. The result of the war, whatever the case may be, was that the Arameans made peace with Israel. And furthermore, we're told that they were afraid to send any further help to the Ammonites. Now, it seems that the initial encounter between Israel and these Arameans, particularly the Arameans of Zobah, may have preceded the description that we read back in chapter 8. Because in chapter 8, we read that in the third verse of chapter 8, that David defeated Hadadezer as he went to restore his rule to the Euphrates. So David in chapter 8 defeated Aram Zobah on his way up here to the Euphrates, which has to indicate that there had been a battle before that to gain this land in the first place. You don't restore something you didn't have in the first place. So it would seem that the event we're reading about here is the event which opened this land to Israelite occupation to the Euphrates. And then chapter 8 talks about Hadadezer rebelling against David and David have to go back and restore his control. That's the way the chapters seem to fit together and the events seem to fit together. Now, 
what is really significant is for us to look on into chapter 11. In the juxtaposition of the events described in chapters 10 and 11 of 2 Samuel, there's a powerful lesson. A lesson that is found over and over and over again in the pages of Scripture. In a nutshell, this lesson is, after a great victory, be on high alert because shocking defeat is lurking around the bend. Spiritual victory must be followed by vigilance, not complacence. And if we can just get that into our heads and into the warp and woof of our being, spiritual victory must be followed by vigilance, not complacence. Because the enemy is no respecter of our spiritual victories. And he knows that if he comes around a curve that we're, when we're blindsided, he can get us. And David is a powerful example of this. But there are others in Scripture. For example, remember Moses on Mount Sinai. He was basking in the glory of 40 days in the presence of the Lord. Can you imagine being 40 days in the presence of the Lord? No wonder he glowed and receiving the Word of God. And God gave him the Decalogue on, on two uh, tablets and he carried them down the mountain. He got down to the, ba towards the base of the mountain and what he discovered was that the people that he had led faithfully out of, out of Egypt for a period of over one year were in open rebellion against God. They were worshiping and dancing and acting in very immoral ways in honor of some golden calf that they had created, which his brother Aaron would say, well, you know, I just stuck this gold in and out popped this calf. Oh, right. And in a fit of rage, Moses just threw the plates down and smashed the work of God all over the rocks. And as a result, he had to go back up the mountain and God made him carve the, the Decalogue in the tablets the next time. But maybe a more clear example is Elijah, who was also on a mountain, Mount Carmel. And we all remember that story where Moses, uh, where, where Elijah was on the mountain and there was this great contest between uh, the followers of Yahweh, who pretty much was Elijah, and the followers of Baal and how God miraculously intervened and the priests of Baal were eliminated and Elijah outran a chariot running back towards Jezreel. And then when he got back there, Jezebel said, you're a dead man. And he melted. And he ran off into the wilderness of Sinai and moped and said, Lord, I'm the only one who loves you. And then, of course, we have Peter, who was also on a mountain called Mount Zion. At Caesarea Philippi, Jesus had asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, had said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus honored Peter by proclaiming, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And within a few weeks, he was standing on the slopes of Mount Zion in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest, and saying, I don't know the man, blankety blank. Here in chapters 10 and 11, we have a record first of the great victories of David over all of his surrounding enemies, establishing the most powerful empire in the history of the Israelite nation. And yet, while the last battles were still being fought, we have the tragic account in chapter 11 of David's horrible plunge from the mountaintop into the pit. Let's read the first five verses of chapter 11. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, 
But David stayed in Jerusalem. Now when the evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. David was distracted with the Aramean challenge. And while he was distracted with the Aramean challenge, the Ammonites had refortified their city. Rabbah, over here. Again, I mentioned to you last time, Rabbah, Amun, Amman, Amman, Jordan, capital of modern-day country of Jordan, is on the same site. They had refortified their city and basically gotten their hackles up against David while David was off up here fighting. Ammonites were real slow learners. After wintering in Israel, the Israelite army was sent by David in the spring to go over there and force the submission of the Ammonites. The phrase in verse 1 is very interesting. It says, then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. Very interesting little phrase here, kind of a historical note being stuck in here. And what this refers to is the fact that Israel is in the mid-latitudes. And so Israel is subjected to four seasons, summer, winter, spring, and fall. And that whole region is too. And so if you read through the history of mid-latitude countries, the United States, Europe, and so forth, even, even a lot of your oriental countries, you discover that it was very, very common for warfare to occur from spring to fall and not in the winter. Remember Valley Forge? What is the whole story about Valley Forge? Why do we think so much about Valley Forge in our history? Well, it was because Washington had his army in winter camp, and they tried to survive through the winter in Valley Forge. Well, what were the British doing? They were also in winter camp. They knew it was stupid to go out and fight in the wintertime. Go out and fight in a snowstorm is dumb. And, and, and so in the winter, wherever you go in the mid-latitudes, there's a tendency for, until about the 20th century for armies to lay low during the winter to kind of hibernate, if it will. And then when the fields begin to dry and the cold weather begins to give way to warmer weather, they go out to fight. Now, this is very pronounced in European history. If any of you are familiar with the War of the Spanish Succession, which I know is, you know, you've thought of recently quite a bit. <laughs> From 1701 to 1713, which was a war that took place between France and, and kind of a grand alliance uh, in Europe, Every single campaign is designated by the year. Campaign 1702, Campaign 1703, Campaign 1704. There was no such thing as Campaign 1703, 1704, because every single winter all the armies went to camp. They didn't fight in the wintertime. It was muddy, it was cold, it was frozen. Stupid. We, we know the armies that did go to war in the in a, in a wintertime, like Napoleon. He goes and fights in Moscow in the wintertime and, and he gets wiped out. Uh, Hitler tries, tries to do the same thing, and uh, the war gets uh, turned around. So spring was the normal time in the mid-latitudes for armies to go out and fight wars. You just don't find many winter battles in mid-latitude societies prior to the modern era. So when the weather improved, uh, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to go over and teach the Ammonites the lesson that they obviously hadn't learned yet. Defeated on the battlefield, the Ammonites fled into the city of Rabbah. 
And Joab then was forced to do what all generals throughout history have hated to do, and that is lay siege to a city. Laying siege to a city is not fun because you got to put your army in a static mode, camp your guys, array them around the city and form a blockade. And here they're going to be for weeks, for months, just sitting in the trenches and in their tents and going out and you know, uh, dodging a few arrows here and there. And, and usually disease becomes rampant, uh, often famine becomes really horrible. Read through the history of, of the world and study some of the great sieges. I mean, there are very horrible things. Not only do the people inside the cities often face terrible diseases like the, like the Greeks did back, in, uh, the, the uh, Athenians did back in, in, the, um, in the great um, Peloponnesian Wars, but cities throughout history have, have faced these kinds of things where sometimes almost the entire population inside the city is wiped out by disease because they can't get out of the city, can't bring in new food, can't have fresh water. And the army outside is often affected. Uh, when the Crusaders attacked Akko, for example, clear back in the late Middle Ages, they, they forced, faced a terrible situation for the, for the investing army with the death of thousands of men. They must build siege equipment. They've got to be able to break through the wall, get under the wall, get over the wall <coughs> in order to capture the city. <coughs> and as I mentioned to you before, in a different context, the rule of thumb is it takes only one defender to hold out 20 attackers, typically in sieges throughout time. So you've, you've got to have a very powerful investing army. This, the investing army is out in the open. You're, you're exposed to the elements. You're exposed to any time they went the, on the wall, they want to throw things at you and shoot things at you. You're exposed to all this. And you're exposed to an enemy who might want to come and help the besieged city and attack you from the outside. And this has happened numerous times in history. In addition, there were no sea rations. There was no CFI's galaxy to come in on an airport and offload food. The army had to forage for itself. And if you're investing a city, you've got to forage in ever-widening circles around the city. And as a result, it becomes more and more difficult. So this was not a fun thing Joab had to do. It was time-consuming, and David wasn't there, and so David had time to dally. And unfortunately, that's what he did. Vigilance was replaced by complacence, and David faced a tragic situation. We don't have time today to move into that and to see why it is David was in this situation, but next week we'll do that and we'll look at why David got himself caught in this particular situation.